This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello, and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. My name is Amy Lyons, and I'm the nursing director at Boston Children's Hospital in the Medical Surgical Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. I'm here today with Dr. Monique Van Dyke. Dr. Van Dyke is an associate professor at the Erasmus Medical Center and Sophia's Children's Hospital. I'd like to welcome Dr. Van Dyke here with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your early days and how you got to where you are today? Okay, well, it's a very long time ago that I was a, re a, a nurse, the, the last, would you say, the past century. And um, I started in the late 70s as a nurse. I was extremely dedicated, but also very obedient to everybody above me. So looking back, I think everything the head nurse said I did, I never questioned her or, you know, I just did what I needed to do. And just only like 10 years ago, I started to realize that a lot of what I did was not evidence-based and um, perhaps worse, I think 80% of the time I've done things with patients which were, looking back in hindsight, useless. For example, preoperative shaving, uh, giving laxatives before major abdominal surgery, making the patients more ill than they, uh, you know, than they were when they came in. And the things we did to, to prevent or to treat bed sores were horrifying. So it's a quite, quite a, a depressive, depressing you know, thing to look back on. But um, in the end, I think it, it made me more uh, motivated to try to sort of make our profession more evidence-based. Dr. Van Dyke, you started out as an adult nurse. Yes. How did you make the transition, as people say, to the pediatric world? Well, to be honest, that was quite a practical choice because um, I really I, I was dedicated to the work with adult patients. But then I got the opportunity to participate in a randomized controlled trial around pain assessment and pain treatment in young children on the PICU. And uh, I um, no, I first should say I studied psychology in between. So I was a nurse for nine years. I worked in hospital, I worked at people's places at home, and then I realized I would like to do something entertaining in the meantime. And um, because I had worked in psychiatry already, I decided I wanted to do something which I was you know, very, not very good at, and I chose to specialize in methodology. So it's more the statistical area of psychology. And to my surprise, I, I really enjoyed it. And because I was horrible in mathematics at school, but Perhaps my brain had evolved, I'm not sure. And then um, I had the opportunity to do something with the psychology because I needed a researcher for a study in a pediatric intensive care, actually in the Sophia's Children's Hospital. And um, so I became part of that team. And in that first study, we compared morphine given intermittently compared to continuous morphine in small babies after major abdominal or thoracic surgery. And that was the sort of first stepping, stepping stone of a, of a sort of more scientific career. Mm -hmm. 
That's, that's wonderful. Now, I know you also help nurses start their research or yes. support them through their research. Yeah, I prefer to think as um, in our hospital, we work as a team. So our pain and sedation team is very multidisciplinary. So we have intensivists, uh, pharmacologists, anesthesiologists, nurses, psychologists. So together we, we sort of aim to, to enhance nursing as a science. And I think around uh, 10 years ago, uh, my direct uh, medical boss asked me to, to sort of supervise nurses. Uh, when they want to go, want to, when they wanted to go to a congress, that they would, you know, write an abstract, and I could help them write the abstract. And it's interesting because nurses are very humble, and and I think one of the major things you have to do is really give them confidence that they're able to do it. Like if a medical student comes up to me, he will never be or almost never will doubt himself. He will just say, um, "You're my supervisor, and you know, I want to do research." And whereas with nurses, they're much more humble and they say, oh, my English is not that good and I don't know anything about statistics. So since the last 10 years, we, we sort of motivate nurses to, to, you know, to subscribe to a Congress and we help them to write an abstract and they either give a presentation or a poster. And, and yeah, I think it's, it's so valuable and useful because uh, they find it's themselves very stimulating to go to a conference, to meet other nurses, and to get a feel for what research is about. And I think of all the nurses we supervised, like there are always a few who like to proceed with science. And so they start to do some education or even a PhD thesis. And um, I think that has been relatively successful in Rotterdam. But I think the, the, the main thing is to give people the confidence and that you don't have to do it on your own, but you know, I can do the statistics as long as they collect the data and somebody else, we have somebody else who helps us with our English. So it's, if, you know, if you explain to them that you work as a team, then a lot of things are possible. Yes, that's wonderful. Now, you spoke about evidence-based practice. How do you weave that into your research and the teachings? What I usually try if I talk about evidence-based practice, you know, surrounding nursing research, I start from the time I was a nurse and I show them how we had so many rituals which were proven later on to be perhaps wrong, well certainly wrong in some cases, and from there on what I like to do is to challenge them if they do things in a certain way, which is also the same for medical procedures, ask them why do you do it in this way and, and then you know to try to make them see, try to make them realize that a lot of things we do in healthcare are just because we've done it such a long time already. And um, I think that in our university hospital, research is really one of the main things. So with everything we do, we learn to question, yeah, but do we do it, you know, is this, is this the best way to do it or should we think of other ways to do it? And um, we'll just, just like for these last few days, I'm preparing a talk on, on the children who are difficult to settle on sedation. And then you come up with restrainment, physical restraints, and then you find there's not that much literature and it's inconclusive whether it helps, for example, to prevent un unplanned extubations. So then I start to think, oh yeah, but how do we do it with, with physical restraints? And is it is it all the time really necessary and should we sort of 
test it better or do a multi-center trial because it's really an ethical dilemma to restrain a child and and you know it's it's meant to prevent um, unplanned extubation but on the other hand it might distress the child so much that the risk of an unplanned extubation is again also increasing and what was also has been helpful is we do a lot of pharmacological trials in children and for ages we have given medication to children and we didn't have a clue what the right dosages were, like we gave morphine and, and anesthetics. And then we found uh, a number of rat studies, animal studies, which showed us, well, we should have concern about, you know, the developmental brain and there is neuroapoptosis, uh, so cell death in the brain if we give too much anesthesia. And then you realize, okay, it's something which the doctors also do. They, they prescribe medication, but at the same time, we absolutely don't have a clue what's the right dosage in, in, in neonates and infants. So it's just a, you know, you start to think in a different way, I think. You start to really, you want to have proof that you do it the best possible way. And I'm sure the nurses feel well supported with you and your team being there too. Yes, I think so. It, it, it took some time, but now, like the other day, there was a, a, a very bright nurse from the neonatal ICU uh, with a very good uh, schooling, and um, she wanted to do research, and by accident I had some money. Um, I, that <laughs> was fortunate. And, and now she's working for me for the last few weeks, and she just started. And I really notice she picks up very quickly. And she has, so at the same time, she has a lot of clinical experience, but she's also able to sort of merge it with a sort of a more scientific view. And um, I, I don't think all nurses need to be like that. It's just nice to have a few on each, each unit who can sort of, again, themselves you know, help others in, in time to come. This is a great time to go to our audience now and ask them, do you have a nurse researcher or research team who supports the bedside nurse in your unit? And when you answer, if you could please state the location of your hospital. Thank you. So with, with respect to nursing research, I think um, traveling around Europe and, and South Africa, you find you start to appreciate your own environment because in our setting, first of all, we have medical doctors who are also dedicated to, to, to get the nurses on a higher academic level. I think that's very important. I, I, always, I almost always do my research together with doctors because I think, you know, otherwise you isolate yourself. So I really, I think that's a powerful thing to do. And, and I think we're fortunate that we are facilitated by, the, by, by our medical director, Dick Tibble, for example. Because if I go to other countries, like for instance, I train nurses in, in, in Germany, and I thought, well, Germany is a big country, it seems relatively rich. And, and then the nurses, you know, they don't have any possibilities so far to do any research. It's totally not in their system, it's not in their culture. Um, I've been to Prague, in the, in, the, in the pediatric ICU and I do notice that there is a motivation there to do research but again their resources are very limited and, uh, and, and, and for example I've been to Ireland and um, I went there to train the nurses in the, in the pediatric ICU to learn how to use our comfort scale, a, a pain scale 
and they were extremely motivated. They were walking behind me like I'm a duck and they're the little ducklings and they were just so eager to learn. And within a, like within a month's time, everybody knew how to use it. They implemented it in daily practice. And now there are two nurses who are doing their master about the comfort scale and then I'm sort of supervising them a little bit from, you know, from the Netherlands. So that's a success story in a way. And why is it possible in, for example, Dublin? And why is it not possible in, you know, in Germany where there are many, many uh, pediatric ICUs? I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a matter of culture and it really takes time to, to, to get it going, I think. And, and, and perhaps you need a few people who, of course, stimulate it. Um, I remember in 2007 I wrote a small report and I thought, you know what, I'm going to send it to the dean, our medical dean uh, um, of, the, of the medical, of our hospital. And, and to my surprise he invited me over for a visit and when I left he asked me to, you know, to sort of organize a committee to try how can we stimulate nursing research. And in 2010 we have this bursary for nurses in our hospital that they can apply for some money for research. So sometimes it's also a matter of, you know what, I'm going to talk to somebody and if it's the right time, they will do it. And we are currently doing a, a um, we, we, we will start a European a multi-center trial on sedation. There are five centers involved. And they asked me because the primary outcome is the comfort scale. So it's a sedation pain scale. And then I thought, and I learned that from Marta Curley, because she said you have to hook on to multi-center trials if you want to do nursing research. So I thought I will do that. So I go to all these centers, I train the nurses, I'm very polite and nice to the doctors who are involved, and I tell them, oh, by the way, it's a, such a good opportunity to do research as well, you know, to do some topics for nurses. Yeah, you stimulate them to participate in the study, and up till now, I'm not sure if it's because it's during dinner and they drink wine, but up till <laughs> now they've been saying, yeah, yeah, good idea, and then I think, okay, I have judges <laughs> to prove it. And then I hope that within this multi-center trial, next to, you know, comparing midazolam and clonidine, we can also do some small nursing studies and, and these nurses are, will be able to go to conferences because there is, of course, some money involved because it's a European grant. So yeah, you have to be some sort of practical um, to get money and you have to be practical to stimulate nursing research, um, at least in Europe you have to. That's just wonderful work. Now, let's turn to our viewers and ask them, do you have nurse-led research in your unit? When you answer, please state the location of your hospital. Dr. Van Dyke, you are an honorary associate professor in Cape Town. Tell us how you became an associate professor. Yes, I can. Um the first time I went to Cape Town was because my boss again said to me, you should go there, there is such a big problem with pain. And at the time, HIV and AIDS was still not yet officially treated. So there were an extremely amount of very ill children who were very, were very much in pain. And there was a pain researcher in, in Cape Town, Rini Albertine, and I worked with her and we, yeah, we tried to develop a scale which was specially for children who are severely ill and who are not able to express a lot of pain. And from the beginning, we sent out our medical students from Rotterdam. These are fourth year medical students and they have to do a four month research period. And our university really likes them to go abroad. 
you know, to broaden their horizon, which I think is a good thing. So at the same time that I'm there, I try to supervise these students, help them to start up their research. And, and, and what, we, what I try to do from the beginning is look for the research questions they have at that site. You know, it's very stupid to go to a place, I think, and to say, okay, I will tell you how to do everything. You know, you really have to be, you know, you really have to appreciate the fact that you're a guest. And the most you can do is ask them, okay, can I, you know, participate in your studies or can I help you? And so we are doing that now and I've had 40 students over and they all really enjoyed it. And I think they learned a lot because the type of diseases, the way healthcare is, the, the poverty of the patients, the resilience of the, of the parents, it's very, it's very, I think, important for them to see and to take with them after their um, student period. And, and for me, um, it sort of broadened my horizon tremendously and I, I realized we can learn a lot from, from, from the great people in Red Cross Children's Hospital where I work, Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital officially. And it's, um, and it's sort of expanding all the time. So um, more and more I got to know more and more people and there are more and more studies going on in which the students can participate. And I was extremely happy that I think about two years ago I got money from the Dutch Burn Society to do a massage study in the Burns unit. So you have to think the Red Cross Children's Hospital is a state hospital. So most money needs to come from rich Cape Tonian and you know gifts. But um, there was a, a, a aromatherapist and she works as a volunteer. She does that now for nine years I think. So she comes to the hospital twice a week for free and she massaged the children with aromatherapy oil and it's on the burn unit and you have to realize there are 1300 children admitted to the burn unit in this hospital alone. I think over 5000 outpatients, it's, it's terrible, it's a huge problem. And I saw this woman working with these children twice, uh, twice a week and she was massaging them and you saw these children relaxed and if they were old enough, they would hold her hands and say, no, 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 don't stop, you know, do my back as well. And then I thought, well, I want to do a study because especially for the medical doctors, you really need to show them evidence. Otherwise they will say, oh, you know. And uh, so we wrote an, uh, an, um, uh, a proposal for the medical ethical committee. And one of the heads of the department uh, said to me, oh, that's your touchy-feely study. So just to show you how they thought about it, but it's okay. And then um, I asked the Dutch Burn Society, which uh, is a scientific uh, society partly. And, and to my surprise, they approved our protocol and we got money. And that money was used for her salary and the salary of her co-workers. But it was, uh, you know, so empowering that, you know, something I thought was very worthwhile that we now finally can sort of test it in a huge randomized controlled trial. And, uh, and the aromatherapist has a salary, which I think is nice, and she can do, you know, we can show that with simple measures like aromatherapy massage, you can do something else next to all the pharmacological treatment. So that was, yeah, nice to do. And um, I think around two years ago, one of the, the surgeons, the burn surgeon, Prof. Rhoda, and some others really took, um, they did their best to, to make me an honorary professor, associate. 
honorary professor. What's nice about it is that you feel, I already feel like it's my second home, mm -hmm. but it even more feels like that because of that sort of, yeah, title. Again, wonderful work. So you've talked about multidisciplinary teams and you've even gone the extra step that some don't go and brought in complementary care with mm -hmm. that. Tell us, do you do that in all your research? No, not in all research, but um, well, like I said, in, in Cape Town, I found that she was already um, part of standard care. So it was not so difficult to make it into a study. Now, also in this burn unit, they have a music therapist. Now, I know that in the US, this is sort of also standard of care in some hospitals, but in the Netherlands, we rarely have music therapists. And so one afternoon, I you know, walked along with this music therapist and I noticed how he interacted with the children who can be very depressed and painful, you know, with huge burns and, and the way he worked. And then I thought, yeah, that's also very important to do, um, to show to the world. And the problem usually with complementary care is that the people who do it, they write up their results in journals the medical profession will never look into, the journal of music therapy. I don't think any intensivist will ever, you know, have a look. So then you, and it's the same with aromatherapy massage, you have to make it, you know, into a sort of scientific design and then you're able to publish it in the more medical uh, journals. Like our first study on aromatherapy was studied in, it was, it was published in Burns, which is a medical journal. And um, so the same holds true for music therapy. Nobody has a clue what it really means. So you first need to write an article about what is it, music therapy? What is it other than just, you know, listening to recorded music? And now what we're going to do is we want to do a study around music therapy and change of dressings of the, ch of the children, which is a sort of horrible procedure which needs to be done. Um, and I think even further on, I also collaborate with, with the head of department of the pediatric ICU in, in Cape Town, Andrew Argent, who is also has been chair of this, in this uh, Congress. And, and we talk about the holistic PQ and how should a holistic pediatric ICU look like? And perhaps we you know we, we will interview parents, children, uh, occupational therapists, aromatherapists, just to see how can we improve that environment? Because in the old, old days, children in the pediatric ICUs are totally sedated and you know, unconscious, but more and more we see patients who are awake and if you're in a surrounding of a pediatric ICU, that is quite terrifying, um, perhaps even boring, uh, difficult. So it's, you know, it's, it's sort of in a natural way, it's going further on that path. So on the one hand, I think pharmacological studies are very relevant in, in children, but the non-pharmacological studies are relevant as well. As, but you just need to be sure that you sort of present it in a scientific way because otherwise, you know, the medical doctors will run away from it because they will think that's nonsense. So now we'll turn to the audience and ask you, do you use complementary therapies in your unit? And if so, how has that impacted your patients' outcomes or care? When you respond, please let us know the location of your hospital. Dr. Van Dyke, I want to thank you for your time today. Your work is amazing and I look forward to seeing more 
papers uh, and work from you and your teams. Thank you for this interview. You're welcome. <laughs> this recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.